Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Kino Kamis on Cape Talk. And a very good morning to you. And we are joined by the Honorable Dr. Chris Smith. And he is also known as the Naked Scientist. Chris, good to have you on the show. Morning, Kino. How are you doing? Yeah, I came back. From, I'm very good. I was. I had a bit of gastro this week, but I decided that I am not going to miss a day with Christmas. So I'm here, sir, only because of you and my listeners. Oh, well. Well, there you go. There's healing, healing hands for you. <laughs> Are right, you seriously so, better now? Are you feeling much improved? I, I'm, I'm feeling a lot better than I did. I, I think I could probably do with a little bit more rest this weekend, which I'll take advantage of. But no, otherwise, I'm fine. Thank you. Good stuff. You need to cook so, that meat on the barbecue properly next time. Yes, no, indeed. <laughs> now, Chris, um, as we always do, I always like uh, understanding you know, the work that you're involved in outside of this particular discussion. So is there anything that stands out, one or two things that, that you'd like to talk to us about um, that's happened over the last week or so? Well, I think that the sort of big stories, we've got some pretty big cities are now seeing lockdown mark two happening in different countries in different hemispheres so in the uk the city of leicester has developed a big spike in cases of coronavirus the city had had about two and a half thousand cases of which 25 percent of those cases all occurred in the last week or so and so this set alarm bells ringing and where the rest of the uk is beginning to reduce its uh, lockdown uh, sanctions leicester has unfortunately to remain in, in a sort of state of sanction. So there'll be at least another two weeks for them. And then on the opposite side of the world, the city of Melbourne in Australia, the second largest yep. city in Australia, has had the same problem, not on the same sort of scale, though, but for a different reason as well. They think the reason it's happening in Leicester is because of certain living conditions. And this is facilitating spread among certain sectors of society. Whereas in Melbourne, actually, it looks like the people who at whom the finger is being securely pointed are security guards who were not. Um, I interviewed a person who was very diplomatic when he said these individuals were not following uh, PPE and infection control guidelines. Actually, that was a euphemism for the security guards are actually having sex with uh, people who were coming and staying in the hotel as international returnees who were being quarantined there. And the security guards caught the infection during their amorous encounters with these individuals and then took them the infection home with them and spread it to uh, people in their communities. So this just goes to show you've got to be really, really cautious with this thing, even in a country that has a track record of having controlled it really, really well, like Australia. Straight back out the blocks it goes if you give it half a chance. Melbourne now shut till the 29th of July. So those were two interesting things about what we need to be vigilant for, which is the the virus making a comeback. Another interesting story that's been grumbling on for a little while, but has has come up the agenda a bit more. A few months ago, there was this uh, initial observation. It was written up in in, um, the literature saying 
that scientists thought they might be able to detect coronavirus genetic information at the sewage works. And this was done in the Netherlands, and we wrote a little piece about it on The Naked Scientist. Very interesting to see that now this is being embraced on a wider scale. People are going to both uh, active sewage work samples collected now, but also going to samples stored in the fridge and freezer that were collected historically mm-hmm. to see when the signatures, they're looking for the genetic information of the virus. This is not the same as there is infectious virus in the sewage. It is the genetic signature of the virus. But why this is helpful as they're pointing out, is that sewage works drain a large area, as it were. So therefore you've got a screening mechanism to keep an eye on a large population of people without having to bother anybody because what goes down the loo goes to the sewage works and you can then test the samples there. And this gives you an insight into, in a very sensitive way, potentially a week or two before you start to see actually human cases in appreciable numbers, whether there is disease spread. So this may become also part of the monitoring that we're going to be doing more going forward in, into the future, looking at what's going down the, down the drain as an early warning sign of uh, an outbreak of coronavirus. Fascinating indeed. So let's go straight to the, the questions. Let's just go to this one. Good morning, Kino and Chris. How come I still feel pain in an amputated limb? And what can I do in mind to stop the pain? Regards, Kenny. Hello, Kenny. Sorry to hear you're in that situation. What you're describing is a phenomenon known as phantom limb syndrome. And this is quite common in people who have, for instance, a traumatic amputation. There have been individuals who've lost, say, a lower leg when they stood on a landmine and individuals who've had, say, a bone cancer necessitating an amputation of part of of, of their body. And they say they can still feel the missing body part and not just can they still feel it, but it's excruciatingly painful and nothing they can do helps to relieve the pain. It's there all the time. And we think that the mechanism behind this is that because the brain is tuned in to the nerve signals coming from all different parts of the body and it's registering signals that are coming and then mapping those signals onto a map of the human body which is in the sensory areas of the brain, if the brain doesn't receive signals from a part of the body because it is missing, what it does is in the same way that you would turn up the radio volume in order to hear a poor station that's not actually very loud, when when you did that, what you would also bring up is all the hiss. So the brain turns up the gain so it can hear the missing body part, which is, of course, not sending in any signals at all. And in the process, it amplifies a whole load of hiss, spurious neurological noise, which when you amplify it to the extent the brain does, becomes chaotic random signals that are also interpreted as painful. And because there is no feedback loop where normally you'd look at the body part and say, well, it's there, it's intact and it's not painful, you can have a feedback system that shuts off the pain. But because that system is not there, it's got nothing to refer to, the brain just interprets the absence of that signal as there must be excruciating pain in the missing body part. And so as a result, you end up feeling very, very uncomfortable. And it's it's the kind of pain that painkillers won't actually work properly for you have to actually interrupt the nerve the, the nerve pathways in a different place than most normal painkillers can access there is one way that people are uh, getting some success with this which is that you use the visual system and what you can do is to if it's say a missing hand you can put a person's intact hand into a, a box where there is a mirror which creates the mirror image of say their right hand where the left hand would be and you can look at this and your brain then sees two hands and if you then relax the right hand that you can open up and relax 
then the mirror image does the same. And because there are connections between the visual system and the sensory system, the brain sends signals to the sensory parts of the brain saying, this left hand is opening up and relaxing. And this sends an inhibitory signal to the pain centre and the pain can reduce. And this has been used quite effectively to reduce some elements of, of phantom limb syndrome. But it's a very real phenomenon and very, very troubling for people in whom it becomes a problem. Okay, wonderful. Thank you for that question. And once again, we are sorry you find yourself in that situation. Let's go to Jeff in Weinberg. Hi there, Jeff. Good morning. How does the micturation process develop in infants through childhood? Ah. Yeah, what Jeff is asking is, when we are little, we have a bladder which, when it feels like it, just empties. And when we get older, we have more control. And then we get really old, and we worry we lose our control again. So life goes in one giant circle. The answer is that uh, when you have a bladder which doesn't have a developed brain on top of it, so a baby bladder, it has what's called reflex bladder emptying. There is an internal sphincter, which is a muscle that forms a ring, which pinches off the urethra. This is the tube that goes from the bottom of the bladder out to the outside world. And there is a nerve input to that which keeps it closed. And the wall of the bladder is a, mus it's a muscular bag. And yeah. the bladder undergoes what's called receptive relaxation. So as urine flows into it, and the kidneys make about one milliliter of urine per minute, so your bladder is filling continuously at one mil per minute, the bladder relaxes and relaxes and relaxes. As it does so, the nerves that are running through the wall of the bladder are sensitive to stretch. So there is a signal going back to the bottom of the spinal cord, which is a stretch signal. And when that reaches a threshold, it then triggers the nervous system that controls the muscles in the wall of the bladder to switch on. And the bladder then constricts, and you can't compress a fluid, but at the same time, that puts the pressure up inside the bladder, you open the sphincter, so you turn on the muscles in the bladder wall, you turn off the muscles in the sphincter, and the bladder voids. In other words, it constricts down to a very small volume again, expelling all the urine. Now, that's the reflex process, and if you have a spinal injury, that's what happens, and if you're very small, that's what happens. When we grow up a bit, we learn to control our bladder, and this is where you have top-down control exerted over that circuit. So uh, you have descending, in other words, information coming out of the brain down to the bottom of the spinal cord that can turn off the signal, which is saying, I have to wee, I have to wee, I'm going to trigger that bladder constriction. You also have control over the sphincter, which is the external sphincter in the urethra, which is the one that you can choose to squeeze shut. So when you're starting and stopping having a wee, you're using your control of the external sphincter. So you can control when you start and when you stop urinating. But once you actually start urinating, you take off the brakes. It's like letting the handbrake off on the car. Then the whole reflex can kick in and make sure your bladder completely empties. Very interesting indeed, Chris. Let's go to more calls. Let's go to Charles. Charles, good morning, sir. Yes, hello. Morning, how are you? Very good, thank you. Morning, Charles. Good morning. I've got a problem. You know when you do shopping and you look at the back for the ingredients and it says E this, E that, and the next thing. Um, I generally try and avoid it because I think it's a disguise for tartrazine or something like that. But if there's one on the packet... I'll take it because I think it's just a little dose. But now, even with the one, I find that my mouth is numb for a couple of hours after I've 
um, taken whatever it is with the E. Can you tell me a little bit about it? What is this E story? I, I looked at it and they said it's European. What the heck does Europe, E for European yeah. mean? It doesn't tell anybody anything. Well, Charles, what they were doing when they designated these foodstuffs with E numbers were they were giving different food elements or different food components or different micronutrients a specific identifier an e number this is the food standards agency and the idea is that when people do add things to food then you can say well we've put in this additive and rather than just make something up or call it say i decided that i was going to call something uh, uh epigastric juice uh, now, that's, now I know what the epigastrium is, but there's no such thing as epigastric juice. But I could say I'm adding that to, to this particular recipe and, and I've listed the ingredients. Uh, my definition of what epigastric juice is is not going to be the same as yours. Therefore, to standardise this and make sure that everyone knows what everyone's doing and you're not pulling the wool over people, you call these additives E-numbers so that then there is no ambiguity. But uh, don't be alarmed by them because perfectly harmless healthy things have E numbers too. For example, vitamin C is ascorbic acid. And rather than write ascorbic acid or ascorbate, which might have people confused, or vitamin C, you write E300. That's the E number for vitamin C. So vitamins, and if you supplement a foodstuff with extra vitamin C, you're adding E300. I certainly wouldn't avoid eating foods that have supplementary vitamin C because they'll be quite good for you. So the idea is it's all about trying to add clarity, but it's only any good if people understand what the code means. And so that's why your question is really important. All right, we move on to Anne, who's got a question about oxygen, I believe. So let's take a listen to that. Morning, Dr. Smith. My question is where everybody's become so reliant and dependent on oxygen. Um, how is oxygen made in stored in tanks? Does it have a shelf life? And is there ever the possibility of it running out? Hi, Anne. The supply just seems to be never ending. Well, I thought she'd okay. finished. Uh, I, I, I jumped the gun there. Thanks, Anne, very much indeed. The answer is, thankfully, there is no short supply of oxygen on Earth. It's one of the most abundant chemicals we have on the planet. And the source of oxygen is the atmosphere. When we want to make oxygen, medical oxygen, then you take some of the atmosphere, and the atmosphere is four-fifths nitrogen, give or take, and about one-fifth oxygen, and then at the margins there are some trace gases, there's a bit of argon, there's a bit of CO2, etc. And you compress the atmosphere that you've collected really hard, and when you squeeze it really hard, it gets really hot. If you take that energy away, then it will condense into a liquid, and you'll get liquid air. But the different fractions in the air, the nitrogen and the oxygen, they actually condense into a liquid at slightly different temperatures. And so oxygen boils at a slightly different temperature to nitrogen. So you can use that to then collect pretty pure oxygen. And that, that's good enough for if you just want, say, medical air or something. If you actually want pure oxygen, there are other ways to make sure that you've been very precise with how you've done this and you can scrub out the other gases as well. And then you put that into a cylinder under very high pressure and or into a big truck and you've got a, a cylinder of oxygen. And if you have it at very low temperature as a liquid, you can deliver it as a liquid to the hospital. They will have an enormous great tank where you can pump the oxygen, liquid oxygen. It's a beautiful blue colour, actually. I've actually seen people play with it. It's ferociously dangerous because if it gets onto stuff, it causes enormous explosive combustion. But um, very beautiful blue colour and magnetic. The weird thing about liquid oxygen, if you've got a really strong magnet, 
when you pour a stream of it between the poles of the magnet, then the in the same way that you can bend a stream of water with a, a charged up comb that you've run through your hair and the water bends, the flow of oxygen will bend between the, the poles of the magnets. We're really extraordinary to see. But you can put the oxygen in the tank and then the hospital keep it there and as as the patients use it, the oxygen liquid is boiling off and the boiled off gas is collected out and sent to the wards. So that's how you do it. There's no shortage of oxygen, thank goodness. Okay, we'll go to Peter. Peter is in Port Elizabeth. Good morning. Hi, Kino and Chris. Hi. Hello. I have this question that has been burning since I was a kid. Watching horror movies where someone gets decapitated from the French Revolution onwards, how do we know that the brain actually stops working in milliseconds after decapitation like surely the eyes are sending receptors to the brain because that's where everything is yeah Petter, um gruesome question but an intriguing one the answer is that your brain <laughs> is is disproportionately hungry for energy and oxygen every time your heart beats your brain nicks about 20 percent of the blood volume that your heart has just ejected and yet your brain actually makes up only about 2% of your body weight. And therefore, the brain has a disproportionately high blood flow. And all you have to do to demonstrate how dependent on a constant blood, blood flow your own brain is, is to stand up too quickly from a hot bath. And the world will swing and swim, and your vision will change and feel weird for a fraction of a second. And this is a momentary reduction, not a cutting off, a momentary reduction in the flow of blood to the brain. So when you put someone's head on the block and you knock their head off, you instantly interrupt the flow of blood through the brain. And apart from the enormous impact to the back of the neck of a blade coming down, which also, when you have a severe injury to the nervous system, also causes a catastrophe affecting consciousness. If you just focus on the blood flow, the minute the blood flow stops, the second, the fraction of time that the blood flow stops, you immediately plunge the brain into a state of unconsciousness because it's got such a high oxygen demand. The minute you interrupt circulation, the brain just dysfunctions. And so people are not going to know anything about this as far as we can tell. Very hard to ask them afterwards, of course. Exactly. Thank you so much. You've given, oh, that's wonderful. Now I can rest easy when I see these horrible movies. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> and when I, I didn't believe when doctors said on impact that there were, it was instant death, and I didn't believe it, but yeah. now I do. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, no, no, it okay. is. <laughs> Peter, thank Peter, thank you very much for that uh, question for Chris. How do animals such as bats and whales manage to sleep upside down without getting a head rush? This is from Jeff. How do animals such as what? Well, yeah, I'll read it again. Right. How do animals, such as bats and whales, mammals, um, manage to sleep upside down without getting a head rush? Do whales sleep upside down? No, I don't think they no. do. No. Okay, that was what was confusing me. Um, the mm. answer is that uh, every animal is adapted to the way it lives and how it lives, and it has evolved and to compensate. And an alternative way of looking at this is to say, well, if I look at a giraffe 
a giraffe, although it has the same number of bones in its neck as I do, they're just very tall, because the giraffe is having to push blood from its heart, which is obviously level with where its shoulder is, up an extraordinarily long neck and then bring the blood back to the back to the heart, having gone through the brain, the giraffe has evolved various mechanisms to control the flow of blood so that when it puts its head down to drink, it's not then overwhelming its brain with a huge surge of blood. And it's the same sort of thing. The giraffe has evolved ways to compensate that there's a process of auto-regulation that controls perfusion of the flow of blood through the brain. Bats are quite small. Um, they therefore don't have to worry about the fact when they're upside down, the distance that the, the brain is now below the heart compared to when the, the, the bat is the right way up. That distance is actually quite a small distance, therefore it's not going to make a big difference to blood pressure. It will make some, but not a huge one, but the bat will have evolved minor mechanisms to cope with that. Bigger animals, because there's a bigger distance, and the weight of the blood itself makes a difference, and therefore they do have to evolve things in the same way the giraffe has. But the answer is it's still down to evolution. Animals do things because they can, and they can because they've evolved over millions of years to be able to, to do the things that they do. All right, so we've got one more question here from Denise in Tableview. Hi there, how's Tableview this morning? Oh, very cold, Keno. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Good good morning. Can I ask Dr. Chris, um, could he explain when somebody becomes catatonic, what happens to the brain and why would they become catatonic? Uh, right, okay. Uh, the answer is we, we don't really understand this sort of thing because it's very hard to do these sorts of studies because the sorts of things we would need to be measuring and doing on people in that situation would be very unethical to do. So these are not easy experiments to do, so you can only make observations. You can't make necessarily very intrusive measurements on people. There's a whole range of reasons why people develop states of catatonia, and they can range from psychological things. People want to do that, so they do it for effect. There's also um, metabolic reasons why this can happen. Drugs can induce these sorts of states and diseases can induce these sorts of states. What's actually going on with what bits of the brain and what circuits, though, I don't think we completely understand and why a person presents the way that they do with that. Thank you so much. Wonderful stuff. Well, Chris, thank you very much for your time and I wish you a fabulous weekend. You have a lovely weekend, Kino. Take care, everybody. Bye now. (laughs) We look look forward to chatting next week. That is Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.